Last August, our neighbors knocked on our door and said, the garden wall's fallen down. And they were right. It used to be all along there, and now it isn't. And in fact, still it isn't. It's March, and it's still not there. Uh, as with all property issues, particularly when there's shared ownership involved, and I think there are like 12 different people involved in this process, uh, it takes a long time for anything to happen. Uh, it's actually been very harmonious, but still, here we are, we're waiting. In May, uh, the trees whose roots caused the wall to fall down will be removed, and thereafter we can rebuild the wall. And I mention this because I'm talking about waiting today. And I just couldn't think of any other, you know, current example of waiting. Apart from, of course, all the waiting that all of us are doing. And I appreciate you might be like, please don't talk to me about waiting. I'm sick of thinking about waiting and I'm sick of waiting. I know, but I really actually believe that God wants to say something to us about waiting through the waiting we're currently experiencing. And I want to share that with you today. We're looking at Peter's uh, second letter, the final chapter of that, so 2 Peter 3. I'm preaching on it this week and next week. This week we're going to look at what Peter says Christians are waiting for. And next week I'll be speaking on how we live as we wait. So let's read uh, the first part of this chapter, 2 Peter 3, uh, starting in verse 1. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Saviour through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be? in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. This is God's word. And this is quite a complicated uh, passage. Peter makes some arguments that we might not uh, be able to recognise uh, easily, um, but I, I'm going to highlight a few things that I think give you the sense of what uh, he is saying and, um, and how we need to respond to them. So why don't we pray, uh, because it's the Holy Spirit who helps us to hear God speak. Lord, we need you to help us today. We have many distractions, many worries, many fears, many things going on in our lives, and we want to hear you. So please, God, Help me to speak clearly and truthfully and help each of us to hear from you. Amen. 
Okay, so the context for this chapter is that the church is teaching that Jesus is going to return and judge the world is being laughed at. Uh, In verse 4, Peter summarizes what these uh, mockers are saying. He says, they say, where is the promise of his coming? All things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. And that's actually very like the times we live in, isn't it? Very few people are thinking, I wonder when Jesus is going to come back. People aren't even, don't even believe that's going to happen. Um, one of my neighbours came out earlier and asked what I was preaching on when I explained what I was doing in the garden. And I, had to, you know, I said, the second coming of Jesus. And <laughs> he was polite and quizzical because no one's thinking about this. this. This Christian way of understanding the world is very different from most people's. That there is a creator who is independent of his creation but passionately committed to it. His independence and commitment include, Peter reminds us, the return of Jesus to judge the world and to make all things new. Peter makes his argument about this in a couple of ways. In verse 2, he reminds us of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Saviour through your apostles. And this basically means the Old and New Testaments. The Bible is full of the expectation that God is going to change the world from how it is to how it should be. Now, he has been working on this since the moment it went wrong, but there is a dramatic and concluding event to come which will permanently establish his kingdom. Of the 27 books in the New Testament, only two don't make any kind of mention of Jesus' return or the day of judgment or the future hope of God's people. And it's not like there are little references in the other 25. There are huge sections. And from the evidence that the New Testament gives us, this expectation of Jesus' return, um, it, it dominated the thinking and it fueled the life of the early church. All of this came directly from Jesus' teaching. Of course, Peter was there when Jesus gave that teaching and he was amongst the apostles who who were passing this on. Peter also makes an argument that just as God intervened uh, in history by both creating everything and by destroying human life in the flood, so he will intervene again to bring everything to judgment. And it's this judgment that we're going to be focusing on today. We need to understand what it is because it's this, Peter says, that is part of what we are waiting for. To help us understand this, Peter writes about judgment as fire, talks about the day's arrival as being like a thief in the night. And between those two images, he tells us why God hasn't yet done what he is promising to do. So let's start with fire. I thought of filming this section maybe in my living room. I've got a fireplace, I could have lit a nice little fire in there. Uh, But that would have not given you any kind of impression of what the Bible means when it talks about the fire of judgment and what Peter means in this passage. Just look again at what he says. He says, The heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire. The heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. And again, the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. I mean, if we literally set fire to all these trees and all those buildings and the sky, then we'd be getting a sense of the atmosphere that Peter is trying to create with this language. It's really not the same as... A little something to help us feel snug on a cold winter evening uh, or to help us cook a meal on a lazy summer's afternoon on the meadows. 
Now some uh, worldviews see fire as cleansing, uh, restorative, part of the circle of life, and we do see this in nature. But in Hebrew thinking, fire means destruction, and it is strongly associated with God and his judgment. With its unapproachable heat and light and its capacity to destroy, fire symbolizes aspects of God's awesome nature. Fire is life-giving, yes, but it's also life-threatening. When Adam and Eve were banished uh, from the garden, we're told that the way back to the tree of life was guarded by a flaming sword. When God appeared to Moses and Israel in the Exodus, he did so firstly as a burning bush, and then as a pillar of flame, and then as fire on a mountain. The sacrificial system that he established to allow people to come close to him involved burnt offerings. In Deuteronomy 4.24, he's called a consuming fire. So it's no real surprise that when Jesus was talking about the judgment to come, when Jesus was talking about hell, he used the imagery of fire. And Peter heard this and passed it on to us. And it's when we hear this that we tend to feel uh, deeply uncomfortable. So let's explore that. It's interesting, isn't it, how often we think the worst of God? That despite all his evident kindness and goodness to us, we still you know, suspect his character? Despite all that he's done to save people, despite the massive cost it was to him, we still think that somehow he'd prefer to punish us? I think, I think that events over the last couple of years have shown us again that actually we do want justice and in order for there to be justice, there must be judgment. The Bible teaches that because God loves people and because he loves his creation, he hates that which damages and defiles those things. So God is not ambivalent when women are abused and intimidated. His anger burns against it and against those who perpetrate it. He is not uh, relaxed about racial injustice. He is going to destroy the systems that allow and encourage it. Now, if your life is fairly well insulated from the grim realities of sin that most people around the world and throughout history experience, this talk of fires of judgment might seem like a bit of an overreaction. But if you have experienced or are experiencing injustice, you will want it to be put right. And the more you look around, the more pervasive you see this evil is. Of course, there's loads of good. I'm surrounded by goodness right now. But I know actually I'm also surrounded by things that are wrong and things that are evil. And I know that not only am I surrounded by them, but they're in my heart as well. The Bible says, therefore, that this putting to rights of all things needs to come from outside of the world, needs to come from outside of us. Because everything and everyone is infected with it. And so God will come, Jesus, in all his glory to judge the living and the dead by the standards that he has set of love and holiness. All that is opposed to God will be destroyed. Now, the fullest treatment of this, uh, if you want to just go to one place to read about it, Matthew 24 and 25, when Jesus is teaching. Uh, there's, there's lots of apocalyptic language there. Uh, so read it just getting the force of what he's saying rather than looking at the actual detail. But you'll see he's really clear about it. Christians should pray and act for God's kingdom to come now. Absolutely. We're going to look at that next week. 
but it will only finally and fully be achieved when, as Peter says, the fire of judgment comes and God makes new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. This triumph of God's will and this establishment of his kingdom of eternal perfection and joy should be the focus of all Christians. Peter goes on to mention that we are waiting. And we're still waiting. We're still waiting for this to happen. And why is God taking so long? Well, that's a question that believers and unbelievers both might ask. And Peter's answer is twofold. He says, because God is eternal and because God is merciful. So he quotes and expands uh, on uh, Psalm 90, which says that to God, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. God knows literally everything that is being done and said and thought right now in billions of people around the world. And he knows this for every day that's ever been. And all of history is before him at once because he exists outside of time. He created it. Now, the breadth and the depth of this is simply incomprehensible to finite creatures like you and me. We can't understand what it means, but we can, we can say, wow we can say praise be to God. But Peter then gives us another reason why God is waiting and it's even more amazing than the fact that our perception of time is totally different to his because he's phenomenal. And it's this because not only is he phenomenal, he is merciful, he is patient. As Exodus 34 verse 6 says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger. It is his loving desire that more and more people come into his kingdom and so he continues to hold the gates open. He continues to let the gospel be preached so that they would come in. Any of us who have put our trust in Christ have benefited from this because he takes our sins on himself and has given us his perfect righteousness. We have no fear of the judgment to come because Jesus has already been judged in our place. But what if Jesus had returned whilst we were still in rebellion against him? It is the mercy and the kindness of God that he did not. Nevertheless, Peter goes on to say that the day will come. It will arrive. And this is the second image he uses along with fire. It's that the day will arrive like a thief. A thief in the night. This is a picture that Jesus used and it clearly caught the imagination of the New Testament writers. Uh, Many of them uh, use it at different times. Now the way we we respond to the threat of thieves is that we lock our doors and we, you know, maybe build elaborate security systems and we do those things so that we can then go to sleep. But that's not the application that Jesus is talking about here. When he talks about this, he wants us to be ready. He says uh, that it's going to come like a thief in the night. You don't know when it's going to happen. Therefore, you must be ready. And, And he wants us to live with a sense of imminence, of urgent expectation and readiness for his return. Now, we'll look more about what that looks like next week. But I want to end today as I started by thinking about the wait itself, the waiting. Peter had had to contend with people who thought the idea of Jesus coming back was ridiculous. And Christians live in similar circumstances today with everyone around us thinking and acting as if that is nonsense, not going to happen. 
And that makes it very easy for this vital biblical expectation to slip our minds because we get very few external reminders that the whole world around us is doing very little to remind us of this fact. We start to think, for example, that the wall is always going to be like the rubble it currently is. But that's not the case. I believe that one of the things God is wanting to do through this pandemic is to get real hope back into Christian thinking and therefore into Christian living. Because when the here and now is all pleasant, why look forward? When we're told that our choice of coffee or car has life-giving meaning, why search elsewhere for those things? But when the comforts and certainties of life collapse, where do we find hope? We find it in Christ alone. This means that our lives should only make sense if Jesus is coming back. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15 that if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. So he's saying that Christianity shouldn't make sense to people if this life is all there is. But for many of us, our lives look, they look pretty explicable in the here and now. And we forget that we're supposed to be waiting. And so I think we are being taught to wait in order that we remember to wait in our Christian lives. This will mean that feelings of frustration, of yearning, of incompleteness are going to be part of our experience until we die or Jesus comes back. And this longing that we feel for a normal life right now we need to, it's like we need to transpose that into, our, um, uh, into a longing, the true longing for the eternal life to come. See, the pandemic has shown, that this, uh, has shown life for what it is right now. Wonderful, of course, but actually it's temporary. It's contingent. It's fragile. It's penultimate. Its restrictions are significant at all times. Its pleasures are always fleeting. Even though we're Christians who are filled with the Holy Spirit, yet we still feel socially distanced from God, don't we? Even though we're new creations, able to live uh, His way, we sin, it's still with us, we're still struggling with those things. We're meant to feel the tension of that and then to have the expectation, oh, to be with Jesus and to be like Him. Do you love this life too much? Do you have any interest in the life to come? Any expectation for it? Is it at all impacting your ambitions, the decisions you make, the efforts you give? God is trying to correct our desperately short-term perspective by making us wait in the natural and then teaching us to apply that waiting to Jesus' return. Of course, that's not how most people are acting right now, and Christians are included in that. Of course, I'm included in that. I want to see my mum. I want to be with you all and sing and share stories. I want just for a short time to leave the boundaries of Edinburgh and go and see something else and somewhere else. Of course, we want to do those things. But to respond to what has happened by resolving simply to make the most of the here and now would be a grievous error and a refusal to hear what God has been saying to us. As Peter says, according to his promise, we are waiting 
for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Don't put your hope in anything else.